Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Writer Azar Nafisi says totalitarian regimes pay too much attention to poets and writers harassing, jailing, and even killing them. But in America, the problem is too little attention, silencing artists through indifference and negligence. Nafisi's new book, Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times, makes the argument for reading fiction not as an escape from our political problems, but as part of the solution to them. We'll talk with Nafisi for the hour about authoritarian tendencies in the U.S., being curious about your enemies, and what she learned from her father, who was in prison for four years in Iran. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Azar Nafisi's new book, is a series of letters to her late father discussing the writers she turns to when grappling with oppression, war, and injustice, including Salman Rushdie, Zora Neale Hurston, Margaret Atwood, and James Baldwin. I'm not talking about literature of resistance, but literature as resistance, she writes. The ways literature and art resist seats of power, not only that of kings and tyrants, but the tyrant within us as well. She joins us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me at the show. So this concept of the tyrant within feels like a very significant part of your book, this idea that we need to question our own impulses, even the ones, maybe even especially the ones that feel really justified. Yeah, you know, there is um, a quotation by the protagonist in Elias Khoury's Gate of the Sun, one of the books I discuss um, uh, in my book. And he says, our enemies are like our mirrors. Mm -hmm. They show us to ourselves. So uh, one of the things about fiction that makes it dangerous um, is not that it uh, questions the world, but that it turns the question back to us and it questions us. Uh, so the question for us is how much of our enemy do we have within us? Mm-hmm. And how can we resist that enemy within, uh, which is at times much more important than the enemy without? Mm. For you, who do you see as enemies? Well, uh, usually, uh, if we go by gradation, you have opponents, adversaries, and then enemies, uh, those with whom um, lines of communication have closed, Mm -hmm. where you uh, feel that uh, sometimes uh, uh, this uh, closure leads to physical, uh, the desire to physically e- eliminate someone. Mm-hmm. Um, in a democracy like uh, America, we don't physically eliminate, but we eliminate. Mm-hmm. 
those we consider our enemies. And the whole question that fiction puts to us is uh, how far, um, how, how far, are, how much are we like our enemies mm. if we act like them? If they eliminate and we decide to eliminate and yet claim to be democratic, you can't be democratic at the same time, uh, polarize the discourse to such an extent that uh, you make the other person disappear. Yeah. You know, reading this book, I sense that you were actually struggling with Donald Trump's presidency <laughs> and feeling like, ah, this is this is my enemy. This is this way of thinking is in opposition to what I want for this country and for myself. And yet at the same time, you do make this observation, which I, it really I, I can't stop thinking about, which was you call this the, the slogan, make America great again. You call it spiritual comfort for his followers, which I that had never even occurred to me. Yeah, that is how tyrants uh, control others. It is not just by force and through violence, but uh, it is through uh, the slogans, the words they use to create comfort zones. I mean, to make America great again makes you part of a larger project. And the fact that you are accepted by so many others to, and you are right, it takes away from you the power of thinking and uh, we always praise thinking, but uh, uh, sometimes we're unaware that how much we don't want to think. We don't want to imagine because to imagine and to think is to search for truth. And truth is always dangerous. For once you know it, you cannot remain silent. And if you do remain silent, you have, in fact, um, uh, become complicit uh, in the crimes that are committed. Uh, so, uh, yeah, these slogans are very comfortable. Ayatollah Khomeini came to Iran with um, spiritual comfort from God. Uh, he was a man of God, and so all the followers uh, would also become people uh, of God. Mm -hmm. You know, this is probably a good time to step back to the form that your book ended up taking. I mean, you're processing the pandemic. You're processing the Black Lives Matter protests following George Floyd's murder. How did you land on the form that this book needed to take being letters to your father who passed years ago and, you know, is not familiar with those events, was not? Well, you know, um, I didn't want to write literary essays. Uh, it's very difficult for me, actually, to write a literary essay. I wanted to write with both feeling as well as the mind. And um, uh, letters seem to create a sort of uh, in the, um, uh, intimate atmosphere. 
And at first, um, uh, when I was um, uh, during the 2016 elections, I was so frustrated that in my diary, I started writing letters at random, like mm -hmm. Saul Bellows Herzog. I was just writing letters, including to my father and including Donald Trump. I was telling him what I think of him. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but those letters were too random. You know, they would not turn into a book. Uh, so then I started writing to the writers whose books I discussed in the book. Mm. But that became too artificial. What did I know about their private lives? Uh, I didn't have that kind of a relationship with them. And I was talking to a friend and she said, why don't you write for a third person? And my father came to my mind. And, you know, letter writing for my father and I was not something new. Uh, the first time I wrote to him, I was six years old and uh, he was studying in uh, America and I had just learned how to write. And um, the first time he wrote uh, a letter addressed to me and I still have um, the notebook in which he wrote it, I was only four years old wow. and he addresses me. And he says that he hopes one day I will read this and know about his hopes and his griefs as well. Uh, so, uh, and, and all through his life, we wrote to one another. Storytelling and uh, letter writing and conversation became a way of communicating with my father. It reached to the point where if he wanted to even reproach me, uh, he would not say, oh, I'm really angry at you. Well, sometimes he would, but uh, <laughs> most of the time what he would do was saying, um, there was this guy who had this lovely daughter, but she, you know, did yada, 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 you know, so I would get the message <laughs> from him. And I felt that all his life he communicated to me and he told me what he wanted me to know through stories. Now it's my turn to tell him the stories that he doesn't know. Wow. What did you want to get across to your father about the power of literature at this particular moment? Um, not maybe some of the ones that he'd encountered or ones that you'd encountered together, but, but in our times. Well, you know, in our time, uh, every totalitarian mindset, usually their first targets are three groups, women, minorities, and culture. And books usually become the canaries in the coal mine, the first indications of the state of freedom and democracy mm -hmm. um, in any country. And uh, so, the whole idea uh, of books is the fact that um, they are too dangerous for tyrannical mindsets, whether they are in totalitarian societies like a theocracy, like the Islamic Republic, or in a democracy, the trends we see today in America that is totalitarian in essence, that doesn't see others, that wants to impose one voice, their own voice on all voices. Now, fiction by nature is democratic. Uh, yeah, what do you mean at, by that? Uh, well, look at the structure of the fiction. Um, 
all the characters in the novel should have a voice. Uh, the, the writer has to go under the skin of every character, including the villains, including the characters he doesn't like, and allow them a voice, and give the reader the room to experience each of these characters and make her or his own decisions about them. So novel is by essence in, in structure um, against totalitarian uh, mindset, which owns one voice, his or her own voice. Mm. And uh, I believe that fiction, is, uh, Im works of imagination, not just fiction, are based on two human traits. One is curiosity. Um, Nabokov used to say curiosity is insubordination in its purest form, <laughs> because both in science and literature, we become curious, we come out of ourselves, we join others, literature is about the other. And we want to go into strange domains like Alice in Wonderland. We are running after that white rabbit and jumping down that hole without saying, I'll jump this down this hole if it confirms all my presuppositions <laughs> and uh, prejudices. You jump that, down that hole because you don't know and you want to know. And the second thing is that once you become curious about others, you want to connect to them and you connect through empathy. Mm -hmm. Difference by itself is dangerous. It needs empathy to complement it. And so you connect to the whole world through stories. Yeah. We're talking with writer Azar Nafisi about her new book, Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. And we want to hear from you. Which writers do you reach for when the world is in crisis? You can even share a quote from literature that you turn to when seeking truth or courage. You can give us a call. Numbers 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum, and the emails forum at kqed.org. We'll be back with more with the Zar Nafisi right after this break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with writer Azar Nafisi about her new book, Read Dangerously. The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. And we do want to hear from you. What writers do you reach for when the world is in crisis? Numbers 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. 
We were talking a little bit about authoritarianism in the United States and one of the fault lines that have been exploited by our homegrown authoritarians are the racial divides and the injustices uh, in America and the ways that that many um, white people have felt about these things. Um, and one of the things that's fascinating in your book is your father comes to the United States and he writes a letter to Lyndon Baines Johnson, to LBJ, and a lot of it is about race in America. Can you tell us about that letter and what it told you about race in America? My father was mesmerized by United States, both in a positive and negative way. And uh, part of it might have been because uh, apart from Iran, that was the country he spent more time in uh, while he was studying here at the American University. But one thing that he kept coming back to was this glaring contradiction at the heart of the American society where on one hand, it was a free society, there was freedom of speech, there was unheard of prosperity. And at the same time, there was also unheard of poverty and uh, the racial divide. He couldn't stomach the racial divide. He couldn't mm. understand it. And would James Baldwin, uh, he also believed that race is a construct. Mm -hmm. It is uh, a, a trick used by some white people in order to control um, the African-Americans, in order to keep them enslaved. And he couldn't abide by that. He kept coming back to um, that issue. I, and I think that in his thinking, again, uh, that's why I find I, I think that he likes he would have liked James mm -hmm. Baldwin. Along with Baldwin, um, he also felt that um, freedom and democracy in America, the guarantee for it is um, abolition of racism, mm -hmm. that uh, the cause of African-Americans was at the center of the cause and idea of America. Um, we would talk and he would talk about these great men who created uh, the country, but the idea that they had about the country went beyond them. It transcended them because most of them were slave owners. Mm -hmm. But the idea of America in the Declaration of Independence is equality for all. And uh, my God, the beautiful uh, phrase, pursuit of happiness for all, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was um, enamored of the idea of America and was bewildered and outraged at the practices that went against that idea. He got very excited about Lyndon Johnson's great society and was wondering how much the words would turn into actions. So interesting. You know, we're talking about James Baldwin. You're attracted to James Baldwin's politics, certainly, and his read on the the deep problems of race in America. But you're also attracted to the fact that he doesn't go all in for a particular ideology, that he retained what you call his independence of mind. Can you talk to us about that? 
Well, as a writer, you need your independence of mind more than anything else. You cannot be um, affected by any kind of dogma uh, or, or prejudice yourself, you know. And Baldwin, as a writer, saw himself as a witness, witness to the truth. And so his function was to tell the truth and to let the readers judge for themselves. You know, fiction does not make policies, but it helps set up the mindset of policymakers, mm -hmm. as opposed to the tyrannical uh, mindset, uh, fiction um, creates, uh, helps to create a, a domain in which democracy becomes possible. And uh, that is how Baldwin acts. And he uses his personal experiences in order to make uh, his social and political points. Uh, and uh, I find it fascinating the way he does. Baldwin essentially was for enlightening people. Mm -hmm. He talks about ignorance allied with power is the worst enemy of justice. So for him, the fight against totalitarianism, against autocracy, against racism was bound and linked to um, the struggle um, that fiction, the resistance that fiction puts against them. It struck me, too, in the book that one of the things you love about Baldwin is that he never loses sight of the humanity of even the kind of worst people that he encounters. And he's very sensitive to the psychic toll that that oppressing people actually takes on, on those who do it. Exactly. And that is at the heart of uh, this book. Um, Baldwin, uh, you know, you mentioned about the enemy within. That is what he's most scared of. He talks about being, he's being afraid of hatred sitting on his lap, mm. you know, and uh, time and again, he goes back to two points. One point is that we cannot uh, respond with hatred to hatred because we become like our enemy. Look at the Ukraine today. Putin kills children and innocent uh, and armed citizens. What does Ukraine do apart from defending itself, of course, is call Russian mothers and tell them to come and collect their captured soldiers. In order to become genuinely democratic, we cannot become like our enemy. That is one of the points that Baldwin goes back to. If they are violent, we, like Martin Luther King, uh, and in one other sense, like Frederick Douglass, we find ways of resisting them by not being violent, but not giving up the resistance. And that is how the civil rights movements made its victories. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, uh, in America, uh, one, one example of dealing with your adversary was the exchange between Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi. Donald Trump would call her crazy Nancy. He loves to slander people. Mm -hmm. And what does um, Nancy Pelosi do? She says, I pray for him. Now, what can he do? 
how can he respond to that? I pray for him. Uh, it just brings astonishment to him most probably mm -hmm. rather than anything else. So uh, that aspect of Baldin, I very much appreciate. Yeah. One of the things I found fascinating about your reading of Baldwin is the way that you were processing it through your experience with the oppressive systems in the Islamic Republic and the way that that total system was weighing on your, I guess what I would call your soul. That's really what it yes. sounds like in the book. Yes. Um, it, it, yeah, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead, please. Oh, I was just thinking, you know, just tell me more about the kind of parallels and differences that you see between that kind of religious-based uh, oppression and what we see here in the U.S. Yes, it uh, over there in the Islamic Republic, there were days when um, I wished a gun. Hmm. I mean, there was so much frustration. And uh, I felt that I was not moving uh, forward with any of my acts of resistance. But then that the fact that I am scared of even a picture of a gun, and I wish mm -hmm. that I had a gun, shows how much my enemy had taken control over my mind. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't good. That wasn't good. So I had to rely on the other creative forms of resistance that the Iranian people have for over 40 years have been practicing. Like, for example, as against the compulsory hijab, and you know that for, there are women right now in jail for having refused to wear the veil the, the, with um, uh, jail sentences up to uh, 16 years. Uh, so, uh, but um, I could never completely hide my hair. I would always put a few strands out mm -hmm. uh, like many other women uh, in Iran or wear some makeup just and come into the streets in a way that the regime did not approve of. And I felt that through these gestures, no matter how small they felt, I was telling them that you didn't win. Mm -hmm. Look, look at me. I'm not the kind of creature that you wanted me to become. Mm -hmm. And that kind, and, and I felt the same emotions uh, when, especially when Donald Trump came up with these big lies you know, uh, the, the, the lies bothered me more than anything else. And um, the last thing I wanted to say was that the struggle in the, you know, in the Islamic Republic and the one that I'm facing right here, right now, is not political. It is existential. Mm. And struggle against racism is also existential. I felt that as a woman, as a teacher, as a writer and reader, as a mother, as a friend, as, as someone who believes in human rights, I cannot take this injustice. I have to stand up to it. And if I don't stand up to it, I feel ashamed of myself. It wasn't just that the world would condemn me or not condemn me. 
I would be not the person I wanted to be and managed to change me to some other person. Mm. And that was not acceptable. Mm. We're talking with writer Azar Nafisi about her new book, Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. We'd love to hear from you. Is there a character in literature that changed the way you think about someone you see as a villain? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Of course, you can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, KQED Forum, or email your comments or questions to forum at kqed.org. You know, as you were talking about not being able to take the injustice, I was thinking about another theme of your book, which is the way that even very terrible things or circumstances become ordinary just because they keep happening. And I was wondering if you could maybe Margaret Atwood is the way in to talk about that theme of the book or if you just want to talk about it generally. No, you, you're very, very right. Um, uh, and that is why we should be um, questioning ourselves at every step of the way, to, the way we feel. I mean, we should not allow uh, these things, uh, these atrocities become ordinary, but they do become mm-hmm. ordinary. Atwood shows it in, in her novel, how actually people yielding to uh, their their, uh, theocracy's uh, um, violence mixed with um, propaganda um, allowed these atrocities to happen time and time again. And even they themselves started participating in them. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a sort of a numbness that is created once you watch these too many times. And uh, I saw this happening in Iran when uh, the regime would do some of the executions or stoning people to death um, in public. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, that glazed look in people's eyes, um, I uh, never forget uh, having uh, on my way to the universities, having seen one, uh, having come across one of mm. these public executions. And um, uh, I feel ashamed of my uh, humanity. I, I, I need to go somewhere else in order to believe in humanity again. Uh, and, and that is very dangerous once you feel devoid of humanity. Yeah. Another argument you make in the book is really for universalism. I mean, you say freedom, there's a quote, freedom of choice and association among other freedoms is not a Western tradition, but a human need. And that regressive and progressive traditions exist everywhere. Yes, that is one of the main themes in every I have written, Uh, especially since I came to back, since I returned to the United States and realized how much, um, uh, how little people knew about other parts of the world, you know, and therefore um, it was very easy for them to uh, judge others um, uh, in a negative manner. Could you repeat your question? Oh, you know, I guess I wanted to really get at this idea that 
it's almost become difficult to argue for universalism on across the political well, yeah. spectrum. Yes, yes. And I think that uh, uh, this argument that uh, uh, freedom of expression, freedom of women, uh, all of these stem from the West is a Western, actually, um, uh, argument. And uh, it hurts uh, uh, us in the West much more than others who are not, uh, in one sense, because uh, uh, we don't take the trouble then uh, to understand others. But uh, if you look at history, if you look at history of the countries that are now um, uh, uh, autocratic or, or totalitarian, you will see so many um, struggles for and, and forms of resistance against autocracy. Uh, and we forget what kind of conditions Western world has, has been going through. I mean, you have, we had ex, uh, slavery uh, in the most civilized country in the world. We had inquisition um, in Europe, uh, much closer to us um, in 20th century, fascism and communism didn't come from the East, they came from the West. And I, I'm, not, I'm not here in the blame game, blaming the West against the East or vice versa. I'm saying that we need to see the contradictions and paradoxes and ambiguities and complexities. And we have to understand that there is a point where we all share as human beings, that there are things that we share as human beings and that human rights is not a Western thing. Um, uh, we, we had witches burning witches in Salem not too long ago. Right. So uh, We're, yeah. a little humility goes a long way. We're talking with writer Azar Nafisi about her new book, Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in trouble time, we're going to get to some of your comments and calls after the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure... The smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with writer Azar Nafisi about her new book, Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. What writers do you reach for when grappling with injustice or oppression? 
Of course, you can share a quote from literature that you turn to when seeking truth or courage. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Jean writes, uh, one of our, our listeners is our, she writes, uh, many of your guest themes seem to relate to the powerful need people have to belong and to the fear, even terror, we all have of being alone. And I was wondering how you have seen that expressed in the different cultures that you're a part of. Yes, that's very true. And uh, that uh, desire to belong, which is very human, um, has both a good side and and a not so good side. Uh, uh, on one hand, uh, we all are members of um, um, different communities. We need to connect to one another as human beings, and we need to be um, loved and to love in return, as the saying goes. Um, uh, we grow in connection with others. We don't grow uh, in isolation. On the other hand, sometimes the need to belong becomes so much that you become part of a tribe, that you give up your independence uh, in order to belong. That becomes dangerous. Uh, That uh, abdication of your independence becomes dangerous. And we see that in the totalitarian mindsets in this country, actually. Um, That is uh, really uh, worrisome. You know, your father, you say in the book, always cautioned you against going too deep into ideology. And at the same time, was very politically involved, as you yourself have been. How do you see, you know, you, we do need these solidaristic culture. We need, we need to join together with other people in yes. order to make change. So how do, you, how do you strike that balance between the sort of Baldwinian independence of mind and the need to band together with other people in order to make political change? Actually, you know, I think uh, reading uh, is a good way of uh, uh, connecting to others without losing your independence. I mean, we I always feel that through reading, we create um, a community of intimate strangers mm. uh, who um, are not connected through their jobs or the neighborhoods they live in or anything like that, but who are connected because they have passion for ideas and imagination. And ideas and imagination uh, by nature uh, are are independent. You you can't, um, uh, you imagine in order to expand your your universe, but at the same time, um, you keep enough distance that would allow you to judge without prejudice. Mm. Uh, So at least uh, reading can become one way of um, fighting this. um... Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you talk about in the book is the, the way that these different totalitarian kind of structures try to get inside you that you end up living yes. out those those structures and you kind of ask this question basically can we live decently in indecent times i think that's yes. something you said in a podcast is really one of your themes can you talk a little bit about more about 
how you see what it is to live decently right now? Well, uh, that is uh, the question that I ask uh, in my book, in the third chapter, which is about war. Can we live decently in decent times? That becomes a challenge. And the challenge goes back to what we had been talking about before. The fact that we uh, tend to polarize when we get to obstacles. And uh, it becomes comfortable for us to accept the status quo, to go with the flow. And uh, living decently is to go with what you feel is morally um, permissible to you, uh, is keeping your principles and uh, finding uh, if you live under duress, if you live in a place like uh, the Islamic Republic, uh, it is amazing how many um, creative ways you can find to not give in, uh, to not, uh, to, to resist. We have a bunch of answers that have come into books that our listeners have turned to when the world is in crisis. And thought I'd get just to a few. Alan writes, I'm reading George Orwell's 1984. Oh. <laughs> yes. Uh, Bonnie writes, just started The Comfort Book by Matt Haig, and it is indeed comforting. Noel writes, Margaret Atwood's Madadam uh, trilogy. Not a total dystopia, since she inserts some hope here and there. Rasana <laughs> tweets, when my world is falling apart, I seek refuge in crime fiction. Seriously. Mm. Also, anything by Johan Hari loved his stolen focus in Lost Connections. And I happen to know you're a big fan, not of crime, but of mystery novels. And wh what do you think those do for you in these times? Yes, uh, I am a, f uh, well, uh, I don't like the term, but a fan of mystery tales. Uh, and, you don't like uh, the term fan or you don't like the term mystery? I don't like the term fan. Oh. I like the word mystery for very many different reasons. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, but um, mystery books, um, first of all, I'm always fascinated by the protagonist in mystery books because um, even if the protagonist, the, the detective is uh, part of the system, is a policeman, for example, uh, he or she um, is subversive. Is subversive. The protagonist in uh, mystery novels is subversive of the system as it exists. It is constantly fighting not just against the criminal, but against the criminalities that are committed within the system. Uh, and um, uh, he or she is definitely curious put, mm -hmm. and uh, um, and definitely has to um, empathize with both the criminal as well as the victim in order to solve the crime. You have to know the mind of the, uh, of the criminal in order to catch him. And uh, that is where curiosity once again comes to the foreground. And maybe give our readers your personal recommendation for a mystery, oh, I am. I have. I have been saying that I'm very promiscuous when it comes to books. Um, um, may I suggest uh, reading actually um, 
Chandler's uh, essay on on crime fiction, his criticism of mm. um, uh, ordinary uh, mysteries at the time he was writing, and how he feels what mystery should be like. Um, there are too many mystery novels that I like. <laughs> I can't choose between them. I feel as if I have um, uh, dismissed the others by not naming them. <laughs> can't pick a favorite child. I understand. Uh, Stacy, uh, one of our listeners, writes in to say that she turns to Valerie Carr's See No Stranger. This fabulous memoir is aligned with the ideas that curiosity about and empathy for others will take us from the darkness into the light. It's a beautifully and inspiringly written memoir of her journey into adulthood and social justice advocacy as a sick feminist after 9-11. I can't speak more highly of the capacity of the work to inspire readers to become agents of change in their daily lives. And Jamie, another listener, says, and this is one I would completely agree with, no book shook me and my worldview quite like Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. And the second mm. in a series as well, which is called The Parable of the Talents. Highly recommend for incredibly insightful perspective. Do you want to comment on e- either of those, if you're familiar with them, or a- another book that you didn't discuss, which maybe you're using uh, to to work through now and the ideas you've had, uh, you know, in this in this just these last few really intense months? Well, um, actually, there were books that I. Um, wanted to use for this book, but I didn't. Um, uh, One of them is um, Nathaniel West's uh, Day of the Locust, Hmm. uh, where uh, he talks about, uh, I mean, it it is beautifully written, and I'm not doing it justice by giving a summary of it, uh, but it is about um, these um, ordinary citizens uh, in America who are um, numbed and mesmerized Mm -hmm. by Hollywood, how they uh, sort of um, forget their own identity as human beings and uh, become uh, part of this mind-numbing culture. And uh, it, it does have, shows you, the violence of people when um, they lose their self, their independence. Uh, uh, So that book uh, came to my mind. Uh, I just name a few others that I wrote but uh, didn't um, use for my book. One is uh, Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men. Uh, I wanted to go into dictators, the autocratic mindsets uh, in America. And Gabriel Garcia Marquez's um, Autumn of the Patriarch, which is again about um, uh, a, a, a dictator, yeah. the mind of a dictator. Yeah. You know, when you present these things to American audiences, and you've been talking about this for a while, this pointing out the authoritarian rise, at least among some parts of our political class. What's what's people's reception of that? Do they do they believe you now? Um, did they believe <laughs> you before? Did When did things change? Yes, they, the 
reactions are um, very positive. But then I understand that people who come to my uh, talks or uh, listen to my interviews are most probably already sympathetic to to the to these ideas. Uh, so I shouldn't be taking too much credit. You know, just continuing down the path of American politics here, you know, the the this country's being led away from democratic rule. I mean, we can see things setting up for 2024, not having an election where votes are, are counted fairly. We've had lots of segments yeah. on the show and we, we see it everywhere. And I think something I kept thinking as I was reading your book is like, what are we supposed to do if we wake up in 2024 and we don't have a democracy anymore? Like what's supposed to happen? God, uh, that is so uh, frightening, and yet I have thought about it time and again. Um, I thought that after this country, I have nowhere else to go. I don't want to go anywhere else. Uh, uh, but it could happen. And um, uh, the problem is that um, uh, it has been brewing for so many years, but we have ignored it until it reaches a point where um, it comes to us as a surprise, but it is no surprise. Uh, I guess we have to then uh, go into the resistance mode. I suggest we go into the resistance mode uh, right now, today. But that resistance mode, just reading, reading in your work, what, what form does that resistance take? I mean, I think that's really what I keep coming back to because, you know, you're saying you don't want to use the tools of, uh, of these other folks, of the authoritarians. So what is the answer then? Well, we need to be more and more ourselves. Like, for example, you um, reveal the truth uh, in a different way than fiction does, but that is your job, to reveal the truth, to um, fight the ignorance that uh, prevails and um, uh, fight against the lies. Um, that goes for uh, a writer as well. Uh, I think that uh, people in every uh, situation and every position should uh, take their uh, uh, vocation very seriously. I was hoping that um, against banning and censorship that is going on in this country from all sides, uh, uh, we have in libraries and bookstores, but especially in schools and in colleges, we need to have subversive uh, book groups uh, where we read and discuss ideas that seem dangerous to certain totalitarian mindsets nowadays to actively in our communities show that we care, that, that we understand democracy and freedom are things that should be nurtured and nourished every single day. If I may, I wanted to bring a quote from Saul Bellow. He talks about um, uh, those who survived the ordeal of Holocaust, how will they survive the ordeal of freedom? And he talks about how um, in a country like Soviet Union, violence and death is naked, 
but in a country like United States, in a democracy, what threatens us most, what is dangerous most, is our sleeping consciousness and our atrophy of feeling. Mm. So this is the time to awaken and awaken others. Just to bring it back to your father, one last, what's a lesson if, if, if he was, if you could write to, if you could get a response from him now about the situation that we face here in the U.S., what advice do you think you'd give us? I think he would um, do what he did when he was um, uh, framed and uh, spent four years in jail without um, a, a trial, uh, that uh, he would warn others and look into himself to see how responsible was he for the conditions that now we are facing. Uh, he always, I, he and I, one of the discussions we had together was um, me feeling bad about um, my student years going so ideological that mm. I felt blind and um, uh, not listening to him to see the world in all its compl- complexity. Yeah. If there's anything I can say about your book, I think it is just a very deep argument for seeing the world complexly and the just the the beauty that exists in not being sure <laughs> about your, yes. about things um thank you so much azar nafisi your new book read dangerously the subversive power of literature in troubled times just want to give you two last uh comments from our listeners barbara writes the light shines brightest in the broken places by Ruby. yes Quotes well known. Uh, what what fewer people know is that Rumi is a Sufi Muslim. The focus of meditation is love. And Taisi writes, "This is a fantastic segment. What Azar Nafisi is saying, and the slightly slower, reflective, heart-centered pace. It's so important and welcome." And now we're going to play you out with a little Bessie Smith, who we know you love. Oh. Thank you so much for oh, joining thank us, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Marisa Lagos. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? 
You'll left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis from KQED Podcasts comes on our watch season two, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.